Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. It does feel like coming home. And uh, as Bill said, I was on faculty here for three years, um, which seems a long time ago now. It's been 13 years since I last preached in this pulpit. 15 years, I guess, since the first time I preached in this pulpit, and I had a lot more hair back then. But it's good to know that some things never change. The Bible faculty still sort of sit here, and if the old, the old Testament and folk weren't up here, they'd be over there. Dr. Arnold would be right there, and some things do change. Dr. Kiesling should be up in the uh, balcony, I believe. Uh, last time I was here, he liked to sit up there. But anyway, the, the, it's great to see the new buildings, things change, things the same, and still to know that the worship at Asbury Seminary is as vibrant as ever. So again, it's a great pleasure to be with you this morning and an honor to be here, and I thank Dr. Bauer and all those who've made it possible for me to be here and to make my trip so welcoming and hospitable. So we have an Old Testament lesson this morning, and it's from the book of Leviticus, chapter 13 and 14. I'm reading selections from the Common English Bible. I'm going to start with chapter 13, verse 1, but I will skip around, and so uh, just beware that I might leave you in the dust. So Leviticus 13, 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when a person has a swelling, a scab, or a shiny spot on their skin, and it becomes an infection of skin disease on their skin, they will be brought to the priests, either to Aaron or one of his sons. The priest will examine the infection on the skin. If hair in the infected area has turned white and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin, then it is an infection of skin disease. Once the priest sees this, he will declare the person unclean. But if the shiny spot on the skin is white and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair is not turned white, the priest will quarantine the infected person for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest will again examine the infection. If he sees that it has remained the same, the infection has not spread on the skin, the priest will quarantine the person for seven more days. On the seventh day, the priest will examine it again. If the infection has faded and has not spread over the skin, the priest will declare the person clean. It's just a rash. The person must wash their clothes, then they will be clean again. But if the rash continues to spread over the skin after they appeared before the priest for purification, they must again show themselves to the priest. If the priest sees that the rash has spread over the skin, the priest will declare the person unclean. It is a case of skin disease. Now I'm skipping to verse 45. Anyone with an infection of skin disease must wear torn clothes, dishevel their hair, cover their upper lip, and shout out, unclean, unclean. They will be unclean as long as they are infected. They are unclean. They must live alone outside the camp. Whenever there is an infection of skin disease on clothing, on wool or linen clothing, in the weaving of the linen or wool or on a skin or skin item, and the infection is greenish or reddish on the clothing, the weaving or the skin or skin item, it is an infection of skin disease. This really is in the Bible. I'm not making it up, right? You're just following along. <laughs> The priest will examine the infection and quarantine the infected item seven days. On the seventh day, he will examine the infection again. If the infection has spread in the clothing, the weaving, or the skin, whatever it's used for, the infection is a case of infectious skin disease. The item is unclean. The priest will burn the clothing, the weaving, or the wool, or linen, or whatever skin item in which the infection was found because it is an infectious skin disease. It must be burned with fire. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as a possession, and I put an infection of skin disease on a house in the land you possess, the homeowner must come and tell the priest, I think some sort of infection is in my house. 
The priest will order that the house be emptied before he comes to examine it so that nothing else in the house will become unclean. After that, the priest will come to examine the house. If he examines the infection, and the infection in the walls of the house consists of greenish or reddish depressions which appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest will exit the house, go to the front door, and quarantine the house for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest will return. If he finds that the infection has spread over the walls of the house, the priest will order the stones in which the infection is found to be pulled out and discarded outside the city in an unclean area. The inside of the house will then be scraped on all sides, and the plaster that has been scraped off must be dumped outside the city in an unclean area. Then different stones will be used in place of the first ones, and new coating will be used to replaster the house. This concludes the instruction concerning every infection of skin disease for scabies, for skin disease on clothing or in houses, and for swelling, scabs, or shiny spots in order to determine when it is unclean or clean. This concludes the instruction concerning skin disease. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, before I go any further, let me begin by answering the question that's on all of your minds. Is he really going to preach on that stuff about skin disease from Leviticus? And the answer is, oh yes. (laughs) Oh yes, I am. But it's going to take me a minute to get there. And by the way, I left out my life verse. I would have liked to have included that. That's Leviticus 13.40. If someone loses their hair, they are bald. But they are clean. They are clean. (laughs) That's on my business cards, people. I'm not messing around with that. We need to begin with some background, which in the present context means the New Testament lesson and the statements in 2 Peter that you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and that you should let yourselves be built into a holy priesthood. The you in those statements is plural. Y'all. Or when I moved to the South, I learned the plural is really all y'all. In 1 Peter 2, this provides biblical precedent for what has come to be called the priesthood of all believers, a notion made famous by Martin Luther, but of course much earlier than Luther because 1 Peter clearly contains it. But it's also much earlier than 1 Peter since the sentiment expressed there surely goes back to Exodus 19. In that chapter, you might recall, on the cusp of the covenant at Sinai, Israel is informed that if they will only obey God's voice and keep God's covenant, then they will be God's treasured possession, a holy nation. A priestly kingdom. That's where 1 Peter gets this language from. 1 Peter 2 read Exodus 19. So that's my starting point for this sermon. According to both New and Old Testaments, God's people, originally Israel and now also belatedly the church, are priests. The priesthood of all believers, a biblical doctrine from start to finish. All well and good, but what, we might ask, is a priest? I mean, we know about priests, Roman Catholic ones, for instance, but also Episcopalian ones. One can get married, the other can't, if you didn't know that already. But what is a priest, according to the Bible, such that all of Israel and all of the church and all of us can be called priests? What exactly is a priest? Well, on the one hand, that's a very good question. On the other hand, it may be poorly put. Let me explain. Let's stick with the Exodus text since it's the foundational one and talk about Hebrew for a minute. In Hebrew, the word for priest is Kohen, still a popular Jewish surname, Kohen. In English, the word priest is a noun, but in Hebrew, Kohen isn't a noun so much as a verb. Well, truth be told, it appears to be a participle. At least it has that pattern, the coattail pattern, all you 
Asbarians who take Hebrew. I know you can follow that. And a participle means it would be both, a verbal noun to be precise. But the verbal aspect of the word and the verbal quality of the root from which it stems means that one shouldn't ask what a priest is, but what a priest does. To be a priest isn't quite right then. It's better to think of acting the priest or acting as priest. That means that the noun priest isn't quite right either. Instead, it would be better to think of one who priests, or even with the gerund ending common to English participles, one priesting. Well, enough grammar for today, right? The point is simply that the notion of being a priest is more about acting the priest, doing what a priest does, than it is about being or existing as one. And in fact, that's really the only way to make sense of a text like Exodus 19 or 1 Peter 2, or the idea of the priesthood of all believers for that matter, because we all know, as did the biblical writers, that despite the important point about acting the priest, there really are people who really are priests. Preeminently, of course, Aaron and sons. But also other priestly authorities of various kinds, including, belatedly, our own priests, pastors, ministers, and the like. Those kinds of folks are priests in the being sort of way. Well, that's what their ordination papers say at any rate. But insofar as being a priest is about acting the priest, priesting, as it were, then anyone even those not formally ordained can be part of the royal priesthood, the holy priesthood, the priestly kingdom. That's what 1 Peter 2 and Exodus 19 teach us. Anyone can be, or better, anyone is a priest if they act the part precisely because they act the part. They priest even if they aren't priests in the formally ordained sort of way. Well, again, all well and good, but we haven't really answered the question yet, have we? Priests are those who priest, who act the part, who, who do priesting. And that includes all of us. But what exactly is the content of the verb to priest? How exactly does one priest? Here we come at last to the Old Testament lesson from Leviticus. Now, as you know, probably because Leviticus is your favorite book of the Bible... What, it's not? Thank you. Here I jest. (laughs) As you know, because Leviticus is your favorite book of the Bible, here I jest, Leviticus is the book for priests and for priesting. Here I do not jest. The English title Leviticus says as much, tying it directly to the Levites. And the rabbinic designation for the book, Torah, Kohanim, priestly law, makes the same point, only in Hebrew, not Latin. It's precisely because of this priestly connection that so much of Leviticus seems pertinent only for the kind of people who really are priests by birth and training and service. You know, Aaron and all the rest. I mean, not everyone was qualified to officiate at those bloody sacrifices. Not everyone would want to officiate at those bloody sacrifices. But Leviticus, the book for priests, also knows that priesting is about doing, not just being. Especially at the end of the book, Leviticus indicates that the qualities of priesting, specifically holiness and purity, should mark all of Israel, not just the ordained few. You'll probably remember how Leviticus 19.2 famously puts it, you shall be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. 
And yes, there too, the you is plural. It's a all y'all. So in light of that fact, not to mention Exodus, 1 Peter, Martin Luther, and all the rest, it pays to take a closer second look at the priestly manual of Leviticus to see what we can learn from it about priesting. And when we do, we can see that we can actually learn quite a lot. I mean, the book's 27 chapters after all, but alas, I only have a few more minutes. So we need to focus a bit, and the Old Testament lesson from chapters 13 to 14 does the trick. Now, I imagine that you might have felt a bit confused, maybe even bored as you listen to me read from those chapters. They are unlikely to comprise the basis for the next blockbuster sermon series from Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, or Beth Moore. Though I wouldn't put it past Beth. I think actually Beth could probably pull it off. I mean, come on, these chapters are about some sort of skin disease, for heaven's sake, right? And by the way, this has traditionally been called leprosy, but it's almost certainly not the same thing we call leprosy today. But on, on a second look, these chapters on skin disease might be more exciting than we initially thought. Priesting in this section of Leviticus is quite similar to the things they do at the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC down in Atlanta, or in a medical school, or back in the lab on a CSI rerun. Priesting here involves examining infections to see how far they've penetrated the epidermis, looking for telltale signs of disease, quarantining sick parties to see if they get better, watching for the spread of the pathology, and finally, finally making a determination as to the state of the afflicted individual. Healthy and whole or not? Now, I suppose how exciting that is could be debated, but there can be no question whatsoever that it is disgusting. Priesting in this section of Leviticus involves a number of gross, quite literally, unpleasantries. Infection, rash, swelling, boils, scabies, burns, raw flesh, and fungus, to name a few. And the priest is the one who has to examine such nastiness. Not only on people, but also on their clothes and similar items. And as if that weren't nauseating enough, the priest has to do the same thing for houses and for everything, animate and inanimate, that is found in them. Exciting? Well, maybe, but disgusting? Most definitely. Now, since priest is as much a verb as it is a noun, the verbs that describe the priestly duties in these chapters are quite significant. The priest examines, which means the priest looks at closely and sees. The priest quarantines. The priest declares clean or unclean. The priest orders washing. The priest burns infected items. There are other verbs, but these are the main ones. Well, again, all well and good, but who cares? What does all that obscure priestly lore, what Leviticus calls the instruction concerning every infection of skin disease, what does all that have to do with being a priest now or being a priestly nation today? If 1 Peter 2 and Exodus 19 are right about everyone being a priest, what does that have to do with us? Well, quite a lot, actually. Among other things, these chapters in Leviticus show that the priestly function is a hermeneutical one. 
That fancy term, right? That means it is an interpretive one. And that means that if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to act the priest, you better know what you're talking about and you better know what you're looking for. Let me say that again because it's pretty important. If you're going to act the priest, if you're going to be a priest, you better know what you're talking about and you better know what you're looking for. And since all of us are priests, according to 1 Peter 2 and Exodus 19, that means we better know what we're talking about and we better know what we're looking for. The priest on duty who receives the 911 call in the middle of the night regarding a possible outbreak of skin disease doesn't saunter over to the infected house armed with a few platitudes, a, a soft but warm handshake and some nondescript get well soon wishes, maybe a prayer or two. Not in Leviticus. In Leviticus, the priest who gets the 911 call gears up, probably in a level four biosafety suit. Then the priest packs the microscope, the surgical glasses with the built-in magnifying loops, plenty of plastic gloves, and makes sure his brain is clear, his hands steady, and the knowledge he needs at the ready. I'm stretching things a bit. Ancient Israelite priests lacked the medical apparatus, but you can be certain of this. They didn't lack the knowledge necessary to make the crucial and critical determination, clean or unclean. Nor did they lack the powers of observation that were just as crucial to making that call. Nor were they afraid to make that call. Well, let me take that last bit back. I suspect that sometimes priests were afraid to make that call. Quarantining people, especially important people, family members, friends, destroying infected items, especially expensive ones, even whole houses if need be, that's time-consuming, costly, and difficult work. It's risky work. What if you're wrong? At least occasionally, the priest must have gulped before pronouncing the diagnosis. Perhaps they even took some extra time to have one more look at that rash to make sure the hair really was white, the skin really raw. Maybe they took time to utter one more quick prayer for divine help. But make no mistake about this. They couldn't shirk the task. That task was part of their priesting. Now, why should that be the case? Why not declare everything clean? That seems much nicer. That seems much more happy. It seems far more Christian. Well, in part, because not everything was clean. Not everything is clean. But we need to be clear that the priestly determination of clean and unclean wasn't willy-nilly. It wasn't a mean-spirited way to keep some people down, other people out, and the priests on top. In Leviticus, the determination of holy, clean, and unclean states was what permitted access to God or not. And those states even seemed to have affected God's presence with Israel. If someone was unclean, that is, they weren't allowed to access to worship and were even barred from basic aspects of communal life. And if too many people were unclean, the community itself and its worship 
might become so polluted that God would punish Israel or leave it altogether. So far from being some odd, archaic ritual or mean-spirited device, this time-consuming, costly, risky, difficult task of declaring someone or something unclean and then rectifying whatever problems might obtain, that was the difference between life with God and life apart with God. Which is to say it was the difference between life and death. Everything hung on this priestly task. Not just for an individual, but also for their family, their houses, even their wardrobe. And there's more. This priestly task affected the people of God as a whole. Their relationship with the Lord and their nature and function as God's people. Which was, don't forget, to be a priestly nation in the first place. So, that's the priestly task according to Leviticus 13 to 14. Exciting? Maybe. Disgusting? Most definitely. Whatever the case, make no mistake about it, it was one of life and death importance. And if it wasn't for those with weak stomachs, neither was it for those faint of heart or those who lacked backbones. Well, once again... And for one last time, all well and good, but what does that have to do with us? Well, quite a lot, actually. If, that is, we care about Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2 and all those places where Jesus commissions his followers, the disciples and the church that followed them, to act like priests. If we care about any of that, we must care about the life and death importance of the priestly duties in Leviticus and belatedly now. Now I know there's some other models out there, right? In scripture and in our culture for ministry that we might entertain instead of the priestly one. Who wouldn't like to play the role of the monarch or or ruler every now and then? I mean, sure, it's not exactly democratic, right? But but there are a few good kings in the Bible, right? Like, Like one, maybe. And there's no question that some of our CEOs make as much money as some ancient kings and wield as much power as they did over as many people as they did. They're like modern day kings. But but then again, on second thought, there are a lot of bad kings in the Bible and a lot of bad CEOs. Maybe the monarch isn't such a great model after all. What about the prophet then? Huh? A prophet. Who wouldn't want to like to be a firebrand like one of them? Speaking truth to power, representing God to humanity, completely fearless. Uh, But then again, prophets, both the contemporary and biblical variety, they often end up dead before their time with no one to collect the life insurance. Seems too dangerous. So I guess there's nothing for it but the priestly role, right? And why not, we ask ourselves, priests are nice, right? They're ministers, after all. They bind up the brokenhearted. In contrast to those fiery prophets who represent God to humans, priests represent humans to God, which means they're compassionate, kind. You know, they're always on our side kind of folks. Maybe a bit wishy-washy at times, but hey, who am I to judge, right? No, not right. Quite wrong, in fact. If you are a priest, if you are acting the priest, you are precisely the one tasked with the difficult determination, the difficult judgment 
of clean and unclean, holy or profane, remediable or not. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand the sentiment, the desire to always be nice and accommodating, accepting and generous. I really do understand it. I have the same desire. And while I'd like to say a lot more about all that right now, some which would be against all that, I have to content myself with saying this, that any mundane, lackluster, easy way out vision of the priest and priestly service, whether ordained or not, is a far, far cry from the ER life and death circumstances and actions of priesting in Leviticus. If you want to be a priest, if you want to act the priest, and that's who we are and what we do, according to Exodus and Peter and all the rest, then it's time to brush up on the priestly Torah. Practice your skills in diagnosis and be ready to make some difficult calls. It's time to examine, look closely, really see. It's time to quarantine. It's time to declare clean or unclean. Everything, our very nature and purpose as God's people and the very nature and purposes of the people among whom we live and serve might be depending on that kind of priesting. But the other kind of priesting, the kind with nothing but easy platitudes, band-aids, cheap grace, not much of anything hangs on that. Certainly nothing important. In recent years, I've been uh, taking to uh, calling my students in my classes priests. I used to call them saints. That's one of my one of my old profs used to do. Well, the saints are here, I'd say, as class started. Now we can begin. Got that from my old prof. But not every saint is an ordained priest. Nor is every priest a saint, as much as we wish it were so. And so, priests seems more appropriate for my students. Not because they aren't saints. Of course they are. Of course they are. But because they are in training to be priests. Or put better, they are in training to priest. To act the priest. Calling them priests at the beginning of class reminds me of that. That I'm talking to priests and I shouldn't forget it. And maybe it reminds them of the same. That they are studying for the priesthood even if they aren't Catholic or Episcopalian. If they remember that fact and if I remember it too, then maybe we'll be on the same page about those four big priestly tasks. The task of examining closely, of really seeing things as they are. The task of interpreting on the basis of the priestly lore, that technical knowledge that not everyone knows as well as they should, but on which everything and so much depends. The task of declaring what is clean and what isn't. And finally, the task of offering the remedies that restore the unclean back to their community and back to their God. You might recall that in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, a leper, 
That's someone with skin disease like that discussed in Leviticus. A leper comes to Jesus and says to him, if you choose, you can make me clean. And Jesus, moved with pity, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I do choose. Be made clean. Listen, when Jesus did that, he was acting the priest. He wasn't pretending not to see the leper. He wasn't pretending not to notice the leprosy. And he certainly wasn't pretending he didn't know the difference between clean and unclean and what to do about it. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Let anyone who would want to be a part of God's priestly kingdom and holy nation listen. Well, I want to end where I began by reiterating one more time that 1 Peter and Exodus, Leviticus and Luther and many, many others agree that all of this priestly business applies to all of us whether we are ordained priests or not. All of us already are priests, they say. It only remains to be seen if we'll act the part. Amen.